yeah, I actually want to get right into this thing. Can you give us a little bit about your work with um, emergent light? Like, what exactly do you do? What exactly is that about? Okay. Well, I'm a teacher of the esoteric philosophy, which is got other names. It's been called the perennial philosophy. It's also been called the ageless wisdom. And I've been teaching it for nearly 30 years. <clears throat> I teach in many countries. And um, it's a, it, it's Emergent Light is the name of my website. But basically, I'm, I'm here in this life to commit myself to bringing this philosophy out into the world in a way that makes it more accessible because the esoteric philosophy is um, when you read the material, it's, it's can be a very challenging read. So my job, my calling, you might say, is to give it a language and an explanation that is more accessible to people. And that's what I'm committed to do and have been for all of these years. Um, and like I say, I, I, I'm a teacher of this philosophy and a number of countries, and I do a lot of webinars and so forth, um, either independently through my website or sometimes through the Theosophical Society itself. Awesome. Awesome. So how did you get on this wavelength? How did you know that this is your, you know, your thing? This is, this is what you were supposed to do in life? Well, that's a good question. Actually, my spiritual quest began a long time ago when I was a teenager. Um, I think it was about, I think it was about 16 years old. And at that time, I um, I um, wanted to learn, I, I learned about meditation. And I thought, gosh, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. I think I'll learn that. So I decided to study and learn about meditation, particularly transcendental meditation in those days. So I started my spiritual quest, you might say, and meditative life at 16 with TM. Then as I got into my 20s, I started to look at other things as well. So I was reading a lot of Eastern mysticism, and um, I studied The Course in Miracles for, for a few years. I also um, got involved in some some of the um, Buddhist tradition, and I, I, um, I stumbled uh, quite by accident, I stumbled into the work of Alice Bailey. And once I found that body of work, which is a, you might say, a branch of theosophy, um, I was captured by it. Because somehow for me, when I found that body of work in my 20s, it was more than just discovering something that was interesting. Somehow it was feeling like I knew this, or I was familiar with this, or somehow this, this, there was a resonance with me that goes beyond just, isn't that interesting? Um, so I really realized how important it was. Little did I know that that would be a pivotal point in my life, and I would eventually, years and years later, find myself actually fully teaching it. Um, because in those days, I was, I though I was spiritually oriented, I wasn't. My work wasn't that way. I was in the business world. I. I have a degree in business. I have a degree in psychology. And for a long time, I was just doing working for corporations in various positions. But once I and and sort of studying the Alice Bailey writings behind the scenes, and then um, then an, an opportunity came for me to start to do a little teaching. And once I discovered that, then I discovered that um, teaching was really something that I, that I felt very comfortable with, quite good at, and decided. Wouldn't it be nice to not just teach within the business world, but maybe teach this philosophy into the public? And um, uh, that's what makes my heart sing. So my journey started a long, long time ago. And although I still check out other things, I'm still very, very focused on this profound philosophy. Mm. So what is it about theosophy? You know, what is it about the teachings that, make your heart sing you said that it was something that you already knew right almost like it unveiled something within yourself how would you describe that right if to, to maybe somebody that doesn't know any better um doesn't know anything about theosophy why is why is it so poignant why is it so important to you and not only you maybe also potentially others as well 
Well, for me, I, I've come to the conclusion that um, in previous incarnations, I think I had a lot of exposure to it. And so for me, mm-hmm. it was um, uh, coming back home in a way to, to something like that. And and for for the first many years, I would study this material on, a, on, on my own. I, I think it was for 10 years, I never met another person that was focused in the same material that I was. Um, and that was fine because I I was engaged with it uh, and, and comfortable learning it myself. Most people that study this material and who are more relatively new to it often find it valuable to teach, uh, to learn it within a more of a group, study group kind of process. And that is wonderful. But for me, it wasn't that way. I was independent for a very long time. Um, and um, so it, it, it but, before the internet, right? Oh, yeah. It was before the internet. And um, mm-hmm. so a lot of it, and then I actually went to a, I started studying it more formally through a school uh, that was called the University of the Seven Rays. And I studied it for five years as a student. And um, then uh, with, with that organization, and then halfway through that, I was invited to to um, co-teach the same five-year course with my teacher in Denmark. So for five years, I was both a student of it, of this five-year course, and overlapping that was being a co-teacher of it overseas. And we did that for five years. So it was really an intense period of time of of both my own education as well as getting my feet wet with really teaching this material. But it really, um, the reason I love it so much is because it not only is it something that somehow I recognize, but it's also something that is um, spiritually oriented, but has no dogmatic qualities to it. It's a philosophy and not a religion. It's not, there are no, there are no do this and don't do that perspectives. It's what it is, it's a, a set of profound ideations, profound ideas that people are simply invited to consider these and does does by, by, by looking through some of these philosophic principles, does life make more sense to you than it would otherwise? And so it's um, and it's one of those philosophies that doesn't require an all or nothing it's acceptance. You know, you you take the pieces of it that really most resonate with you and you're encouraged to use it. But it, and so much of it is really based upon understanding your own psyche. So much of the path is really, you know, it, it the, the 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 spiritual path um is really an inner journey more than anything. It's an inner journey to discover a deeper aspect of oneself and to realize that deeper aspect of oneself, we'll call that soul for now, that deeper aspect of of oneself is the thing that we want to become more and more um, expressive of and live from. And so there's a whole study of what is called esoteric psychology, which is the real diving into the relationship between the soul and the personality and understanding the mechanisms by which the soul tries to transform the personality, the lower self, so that the lower self becomes a more um, effective instrument in support of the higher self's agenda. So, so much of this philosophy is rooted in this dynamic recognition of our our own duality internally, both a higher impulse and a day-to-day impulse. We call that soul and personality, and how at a certain point in our evolution, that higher part of us is discovered and then later one starts to commit more to it and then realizes that the lower self has its own agenda and gets in the way so there's a whole understanding of the process by which the soul is supporting the transformation of the lower self so that that personality that lower self learns to become a more effective agent on behalf of the purpose of the soul so, so, and it's an, this is an area that is particularly interesting to me. Mm. Yeah, I've heard you say um, in a talk one time that in awakening is when somebody realizes the duality within themselves. It's when somebody realizes they have a soul, um, I guess another way to put it. Uh, is that is that an apt description? Is that did I describe that right? Is you know when we when we awaken we we awaken out of the dream of the ego, or maybe one could say the lower self. 
and we see that there is a little bit more than just, I guess you could say the five senses and the wants and needs of the body. There is a, uh, there's another vantage point of what it means to be a human being, right? And that is, as you would say, the duality of the self or the soul, or I think you also say the, uh, the causal body. So mm -hmm. is that, is that an awakening? Very well said, by the way. Yes, you, you got it. That's right. Let's put it another way. For countless incarnations from the time of what is called individualization, which took place millions of years ago when the human kingdom emerged, um, and there's a whole fantastic mythology around that, but um, for countless incarnations, we've been evolving, and for the first bulk of our evolutionary history, each of us, the, the goal is to develop the lower self. Um, and we're not conscious of the soul in, in, in the sense I'm defining soul as, well, maybe I should define soul first here. The soul represents the sum total of the best of us. The soul represents the wisdom that has been garnered over the course of countless incarnations. And it also represents a higher quality of love that... Um, is is inherent within what you just call the causal body the causal body is the the vehicle deep inside that is containing or holding the soul's consciousness and it's what incarnates and you know we talk about reincarnation well it's the causal body that moves from one incarnation to the next to the next but that causal body and that soulful awareness for most of our incarnational history was unconscious to us because the focus of the incarnation was to develop the lower self. Uh, but there comes a point, at a certain point, well, there's a certain incarnation actually, where for the first time, that personality, that lower self awakens to the soul for the first time. And it's a, it's quite a, a surprising realization because it's, it's an awakening to the, that higher quality of love and awakening to a deeper um, um, a category of wisdom than the personality is normally accustomed to sensing. Although in the at the beginning of the, the awakening process, it's fleeting, it comes and then it disappears. Um, but nonetheless, from that point forward, life is never the same, because at the same time that that awakening occurs, um, it is said that the soul plants a seed deep within the recesses of the mind of the personality. And that seed is what will continue to perpetuate that individual to move more consciously toward uh, more and more um, recognition of the soul deep inside. And there, in fact, in this philosophy, we often believe or say that the real path to, is only beginning at the awakening. Although one can argue that one, the whole journey, even from the beginning, uh, millions of years ago, could be understood as the path. In this philosophy, we tend to use the word path as being the moment, the beginning at the moment where you discover your, your higher nature and recognize that duality within. Prior to that, yeah. though, for countless incarnations, there is nonetheless, obviously, a spiritual dimension to one's life. I mean, religion has been around a long time, spirituality has been around a long time, but the idea is that, um, you know, for centuries and centuries of, and countless incarnations, before the awakening, a person looks at death and sees a carcass, and the lower self looks at that and says, oh, that doesn't look good. <laughs> and um, so it really, it looks for something in the cultural context that it lives to find remedy, remedy to that, what Freud would call an existential dilemma. And what is the remedy to that from that perspective? That's what religion is for. Within all cultures, there are, there's a spiritual religious agency, um, that, tries to create comfort to personalities, uh, giving them the sense that that death is not final at all, and and there is an there is a part of you that lives on, and that sort of thing, and and it's based upon faith, which definitely has its place, particularly up to uh, leading up to the awakening, um, 
And but there's a deep down hope that you know the, the personality looks at this and goes, "Geez, I hope the priest is right." <laughs> but but after the awakening occurs for the very first time, when the awakening has occurred, and then from that point forward, there's another element that is starting to play out in our understanding of spirituality, and it goes beyond faith. It's actually experience to actually experience yes. the soul itself. I often tell people that um, you know we're we're all looking for the divinity, and yet in a deeper, deeper, ultimate sense, we are the divinity we seek, because the soul in each of us is a mere component part of the greater life. So it's and it's rooted in a, a principle called hylozoism, which I'd be happy to share with you if you'd like to learn about that. But hopefully, what I've just said where it gives you an idea of what I mean by the awakening. Yeah, that was uh, very well described. Thank you for that. But can you actually describe the hylozoism? I've never heard of that before. Well, the hylozoism is tr one of the most important principles in this philosophy, and it's sometimes called the hylozoistic principle. And really, really, Gary, there are two definitions of it that I could share with you. Um, and to really understand it, I have to take us to the big picture. Of, of sort of creation itself to understand it. So I'm ready <laughs> to, to begin, realize that this philosophy says that in the ultimate, ultimate sense, there's really only one thing, one living principle, one being, this one life force. Some people call that God. Other people call it Brahma. Other people call it universal intelligence, you know, call it what you like. But that one life, when that's what we often call it in this philosophy, the one life, that one life, for reasons we could not even come close to fathoming, we have not, we don't have the ability to understand the reasoning behind this, but that one life appears to be manifesting in and as cosmos. It's the one becoming the many. So unlike the Western theological systems of uh, the, the Abrahamic religions of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, those are... Um, those religions particularly have a strong emphasis on the idea that there's a God out there and there's creation. And so it's God and creation is the mindset. Whereas esotericism and in Eastern systems, it's not God and creation. It's God as creation. And God as creation is a whole different paradigm of understanding oneself and one's relationship to the greater life. And it's the awakening to the ultimate truth that you are the divinity you seek. Because on the deepest level, each of us is a spark of life arising from that one flame, so to speak. So with that in mind, let me try to now explain what I mean by hylozoism, okay? So... The first definition of hylozoism is can be understood as it, it represents this notion that that there's no such thing as inorganic anything. Because if it really is one life manifesting in and as cosmos, the one becoming the many, so this life force is 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 throughout the whole thing, then if 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 it's all one life in manifestation, then how could anything escape the embrace of that singularity of livingness? So even, even the stones you walk on are teeming with life if we could understand what life is. But the, the challenge we have is that science today, which is, I'm a big fan of science, don't get me wrong, but science has a very, very narrow definition of what life is. Science def definition of life is, um, you know, they say that life has to reproduce itself. Um, life has to consume resources. Life has to uh, expel waste. Life, ha life has to demonstrate a metabolism. Um, but those are fairly arbitrary because, and none of them are relevant because that's that's there's a difference between life and form. What what they're talking about is not life, but they're they're talking about life as recognized as the animating principle underlying form that's the deeper truth 
so anyway, so there's no such thing as inorganic anything. And the, and the idea that we have this, this is alive and this is not, that thinking is, um, um, that thinking is in an esoteric sense, um, incorrect. But the second definition of hylozoism, I think, is even more important, Gary, because it basically says this, that every unit of life is a cell that is nested within a larger category of life. So, for instance, I often use this example with groups. If I take a cell that's in my hand, that cell is considered a living entity. It's a unit of, of consciousness, infinitesimal, no question, but it has its own minute intelligence. And yet, it's just a cell within a larger being, and in this case, that larger being is me. And you and I are cells within a larger entity as well, and that entity is called humanity. And from an esoteric point of view, humanity as a whole is one entity. And by the way, it has a soul, and it has a personality, and there's a wonderful, I've got tons of things I can share with you about that, the relationship between the soul of the of humanity and its personality, and much of the conflicts in the world today during this crisis period is a battle going on between the soul of humanity and the resisting tendencies of the personality of humanity. That's another stream of conversation. But so the, so the, the whole of humanity is one living entity, and it too, though, is a mere cell or a unit within a yet vaster entity. And that entity is called the planetary logos, which is the occult name for the entity that ensouls the whole planet. And that you and I as cells are, are as, as individual souls are mere cells of consciousness within its beingness. And in fact, the whole human kingdom in its totality is believed and understood to be the throat chakra to that entity. Now think about that. The sum total of all human consciousness is this vibration to that entity. Of course, that does beg the question, what's the function of a throat chakra? And the function of a throat chakra is, in a human being, is in a spiritual sense, it's the chakra related to the manifestation of divine ideations and their expression as a function of service and upliftment to others. The same is true on a global level. The whole human kingdom is the creative outlet of the throat chakra to this planetary life. And yet that entity, which is a god to us, is a mere cell within a yet larger entity called the solar logos. And in that context, our planetary logos is a chakra within it. And on and on it goes. I could skip many levels here, and, and I could take it all the way to the Milky Way galaxy. The whole Milky Way galaxy has, now it's understood to be over a billion stars. That's a billion solar loci. But occultly, that whole Milky Way galaxy as a single living entity as well, that's called a galactic logos. And now we even know that there are millions of galaxies. So um, <laughs> I always say that when a it person going, tells, going the layers upon layers. Oh upon yeah. Layers. And so but what it really means is when you get when you meet somebody that says, I meditated and I reached ultimate cosmic consciousness, all I can say is turn and run. I mean, not not even the <laughs> not even the solar logos can make that claim. So there's anyway, that's hylozoism in a in a you get the idea, hopefully. I get the idea, yeah. It seems like um, getting back to the idea of awakening is realizing that we are a part of some kind of greater order. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be an order that is truly goes beyond comprehension. Um, but still, it's like waking up that you're not a separate individual. You're not a separate... Like, there, there is some kind of innate connection that you have not only to the earth and everybody but also to the entire universe god you could say that we are ultimately eternally infinitely connected and when we get that spark that little that light that comes on the light bulb in the mind we not only realize the connection 
like not from an outward level, but we 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 have we, there's some kind of felt connection. Like there is something like that just lines up. Like there is some kind of internal alignment that we feel, right? And yeah, but we're not we might not be able to picture it at a galactic level, but it does relate to that, right? It does like when we do feel as though we have some kind of soul purpose here that aligns to humanity's soul mission, that actually does relate to the some kind of galactic universal mission in the cosmos um it's like something just lines up like for some reason how i interpret that is that throughout throughout many incarnations we were just misaligned we were distorted in our way of living and i guess rightfully so that's how it needed to be to develop our personality but once we get that once we get that you know that light bulb moment it's like something changes where we get the glimpse into like how we fit into some kind of greater order. And then from there, you can't unfeel that, <laughs> you know, you can't unexperience that you can't unsee that. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds so lofty, right? It sounds so grandiose, especially just how well you described it, it sounds like, whoa, it's like, what? do I really want to get involved in something that big? But it's like, once you feel it, there's no other way. I feel as though like once you once you get that glimpse into a sense of alignment within one's being in oneself, um, there's no other way to live. It's like the idea and the metaphor of once you take the red pill, you can't go back into the matrix. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I applaud your description of that. I think that was great. Um, very profound, very profound. I don't really know what else to say. I guess maybe let's, uh, Let's take it down to a more, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess just a more practical sure. means of that, of, of awakening. Sure. So once we get the glimpse into like our, you know, our innate light within, I know you talked, we mentioned the seven rays a little bit in the beginning. Is that kind of what we wake up to? Like our, our purposes is kind of aligned with a sort of purpose of, um, um, within something called the seven rays that has certain attributes related to our soul purpose, right? Could you mm -hmm. describe that a little bit? Like what are these, mm -hmm. what are these seven rays and how do they relate to our uh, innate awakening? Okay. Another big subject. Um, but let me kind of give you a, <laughs> an overview of it. Um, and it kind of goes back to the, the beginnings. So when I mentioned that the one life becomes the many, it is also understood that as that one life becomes of the many, initially, it will it divide itself into seven qualities of itself. And that's what we call the seven rays. So by analogy, um, it's like if you if you like, let's, you know, like God is sometimes referred to as the light of God. Well, by analogy, if you were to take white light, and project it through a prism, it will fragment itself into seven colors of the visible spectrum. Yeah. By analogy, like that's what we're saying. Dark side of the yeah. moon. Yeah. Well, by analogy, what I'm saying is that these seven qualities are just seven attributes of the ultimate divine one life, um, and that they they intermix and um, influence all manifestation in terms of energetic patterns underlying everything that's manifest. But why it's important for we human beings is that your soul, your causal body, is actually on one of those rays. And to know your soul ray is to know the very purpose of your being, your existence, not just in this life, but for countless incarnations. And so much of the process of awakening to your own soul is also a process of slowly awakening to the nature and the qualitative patterns of perception that each ray conveys. So, for instance, a way to understand, think of a ray as being a lens through which life looks out at, the, at creation and the world. And your soul ray is one of those lenses. You also have a personality ray as well. That's another subject, but you have a soul ray that is with you for countless lives. And, and that soul ray is an organizing principle of perception so that 
it defines how you look at the life, how you act and interact in in and perceive reality and choose to interface with it and even define many of your interests and your soulful purpose. They, it all ties into that. And so the study of the seven rays is a huge, huge part of this philosophy. And it doesn't even apply just to human beings. For instance, um, we know that, um, kind of going back to Hylozoism a little bit, we know that, for instance, social systems are living entities that are governed by rays. We know that a nation, like here in the United States, the United States is a being, as every country is. A country is a living entity. It too has a soul ray. It too has a personality ray. So, for instance, the United States has a second-ray soul and a sixth-ray personality, where, like, let's say, a country like France has a fifth-ray soul and a third-ray personality. I realize that doesn't mean much to your audience because you don't know what those rays really are, but I'm just trying to share with you the fundamental understanding of this sevenness that underlies everything. The number seven is crucial to understanding creation and one of those seven rays is the the ray of the soul itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we each have two rays within us. Our soul is one and then our personality is another. And when we uh, when we get that message of awakening, they they I guess they, they find some kind of coalescence and they slowly be able to work together to um I guess to, I don't know, yeah. bring about a, a sense of purpose, a sense of uh, well-refined expression within the human being. Yeah, yeah, that's that's essentially right. One of the things to keep in mind is your soul ray is the governing ray of the whole the soul for countless incarnations, while the personality ray, the lower ray, the the ray of your outer garment, you might say, that's what your personality really is anyway. That ray changes every life. And so let us use a simple example. Let us say that a person has a second-ray soul. Now, a second-ray soul, that's called the ray of love and wisdom. Now, people that have second-ray souls, their service work in the world will often be related to, uh, they'll be drawn to, attracted to service that renders uh, help to people through education. All education, all desire to learn and to teach is a very second-ray tendency. It also governs the healing arts. So let's say that you had a second-ray soul. So that person is going to have a tendency, once they're awakened, they're going to have a growing tendency to find kind of spiritual attraction to avenues of opportunity that relate to either healing or teaching or some of the helping professions. Now, let us say that that person in this incarnation let us say that they had a fifth-ray personality. Well, that fifth-ray personality, that's called the ray of concrete knowledge and science, and it has a lot to do with governing scientific inquiry. So people with a lot of fifth-ray in them tend to have a scientific bend to them, or they are scientists themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, so if I have a second-ray soul, so I'm inclined to education, but a fifth-ray personality, it might one of the ways that might manifest as an attraction to be being a teacher of science, you see, um, or if and alternatively, if you had a if you had a second ray soul and let us say a fourth ray personality, that's called the that's that has a lot to do with the arts and culture. You might find that individual is inclined to teach again, but wants to use is very in, attracted to using teaching methods that support. Uh, that that utilize the arts and culture as um, a tool for effective teaching of whatever they're going to teach. So there's a whole discussion of this is a very brief introduction for you, but I hope that gives you a sense of the dynamics between the soul and uh, personality ray. And the further you are on the path, the more that personality ray learns to cooperate with that soul ray. Yeah, that's pretty pretty profound. It actually is uh it's profound, but it's actually very simple when you put it that way. Um, when you can understand the rays and look at the attributes of them and how they express, 
it actually is quite simple. Um, like when I've looked up certain attributes of the seven rays um, from um, the Tapestry of the Gods book, I'm like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense. Like it just, it just resonates. Um, the thing that like didn't make sense for me though, it's like, I feel as though I have a little bit of everything. Like, is that true? Like, I feel as though that we have, I, I mean, personally speaking, I feel as though like out of all the seven rays, I have attributes of all seven, but you're saying that there's one, maybe two that are more predominant in a being, uh, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, let me, before answering that, let me just say, when you mentioned Tapestry of the Gods, I'm impressed that's, that you're, you've read that. That is a fantastic piece of work. The author of that was my teacher, Michael Robbins. And Michael, um, I, I mentioned earlier in my past where I told you that I was a student and then I it was a co-teacher. Well, I was co-teaching with that man, Michael Robbins. So you 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 yeah, picked just up the last year, right, or two years? He ago? just passed. He just passed a year, a little over a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so so now to the your question though is that um, indeed you are all the rays in a certain sense because how to put this because the rays are pervasive. Um, they also come through the astrological department of your life. So, for instance, um, every sign of the zodiac um, is an energy system, a living energy system, and under and and the background vibration to every sign of the zodiac is going to be rheological. Um, so there are seven rays, and there are twelve signs, and. There are certain signs that carry just a fundamentally as its essence carries one ray. Many signs carry two and a couple of them carry three. And then the planets in our solar system are also understood as living entities, just like the earth is. They too have a soul ray. They too have a personality ray. And so the, the ray of the planet is also playing out. And let's say, for instance, let's say that you, you, um, um, you, let's say you don't have any sixth ray in you. The sixth ray is the ray of idealism and devotion. Now, let's say that not, no part of your, your, your constitution is sixth ray, but you do have in your own chart, there are two planets that carry the sixth ray. One is Mars and the other is Neptune. Well, those planets are somewhere in your chart. Therefore, those planets and their energetic systems will have some influence in the shaping of your, your perception. So you are quite right, Gary. In the big picture, you are all of the rays. But having said that, the, the deeper, more essential beingness of you, as a soul anyway, is actually housed within one of those rays. And another one is housed as your personality for this incarnation only. But and those are the two most important that we want to look for in our development. Uh -huh. But that doesn't take away from the truth of what you're saying is that these other rays seem to be playing out as well, both in terms of their positive nature as well as their negative nature. Because when you study the rays, Gary, the um, it's just as important to understand what we call the glamours of the rays as opposed to just their rightful expression. Glamour in this philosophy is a word that means distortions. So these rays play out through us through the astrology or the, they're coming through us more directly as our solar personality ray. But because our lower self has imperfections in it, distorted pa patterns, we, are, we have more purification to do in our lower self, some of these ray tendencies tend to get twisted a little bit. And many times when you study the glamours of the rays, there are many cases where you can actually recognize a ray more clearly through its glamour in your life than through its purity. Mm -hmm. So there's that whole dimension of the study of it as well. Mm. Yeah, I've heard you say in a talk, um, the refinement process is really when the lower self starts looking up and the higher self starts looking down. I think I said it right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know that? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it, what, it's, um, it's, it's, it, there's a point when you have the, when you have the awakening that we spoke about earlier, 
that's the point for the first time it, it, it initiates what is called the beginning of the downward gazing soul, the downward gazing soul. Yeah. Now, when the downward, when you have a downward gazing soul and an upward yearning personality, that's when the that's when the magic begins. That's when the real um, evolution of your spiritual consciousness begins, because the, the the lower self, its destiny is to become the cooperative outer garment that the soul uses to make a difference in the world as a function of service. And um, that so when we say a, an upward yearning personality, we're really saying that the, the three parts of the personality, the physical, the emotional, mental, have an attitudinal orientation toward a spiritual conviction. And so they there's an inward search from the personality and a downward gaze from the soul and when they meet subtly internally that's where the magic is and in fact that's where also creative work begins from a one of the subjects of this philosophy is the subject of creative magic and it requires that you have a downward gazing soul and an upward yearning personality so you explained it actually pretty well so if we could say like where does this lead to in somebody once they once they figure out how the personality and the soul intermingle and they become more refined does it lead to more of a a service orientation within some someone's being like a a way where somebody becomes um just more i guess you could say refined yes but also useful in their refinement in how they act as a human being here, like they just become, I guess, more loving, more more compassionate, and more useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of those things you say are very true, and 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 um, you know, service is the key. Uh, indeed, you know, it is said that the soul is governed by a variety of laws, and the or the causal body is to, is defined by a variety of laws. The third law is called the law of service. Every human soul. Mm-hmm. ultimately wants to express itself through that personality. It wants to do that without the personality getting in the way, and there's the challenge. And in so doing, it wants to make an uplifting contribution to something beyond itself, and that service. And the more that that personality is um, being transformed and purified and upward yearning, the more successful that will be and the more soul personality fusion that will arise over time. And that's part of this journey. It's not just that you have a soul ray and a personality ray. It's slowly that soul ray is trying to infuse itself into that personality ray, which leads to the impulse to serve, which leads to a higher recognition of love, which leads to a more easily accessible understanding of one's own inner wisdom, which is what the causal body is holding for us. So, uh, and then what colors that and gives it qualitative differences between people of the, on the path is their rheological nature between those two parts of themselves. So, um, but service is the key, and particularly now, because humanity is going through a huge transition it's both an astrological transition from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius, but it's also going through a rheological transition from a sixth ray age to a seventh ray age. So when we study the rays, we just don't study it in terms of what's my soul ray, what's my personality ray, that's important. But there are huge patterns of unfolding ray tendencies. And right now, this sixth ray is yielding. And, and, the seventh ray is coming in to um, be the next um, the next plat- energetic platform for human evolution. And the overlap between these two is what's causing or is kind of the root of the challenges that the world is facing today, because two rheological forces are extremely strong at the same time. One's outgoing, the sixth ray. One's incoming, the seventh ray. And it's causing... It means that two major rays are interfacing with the collective consciousness of humanity at this time, and that's leading to more and more polarizations 
attitudinally by people in the masses. And therefore, um, your ability, my ability, our ability of all of us on the path is to, you're needed now more than ever to bring that rheological wisdom that we each have, that love that we each have, that understanding of life that we each have. Right now, you're needed more than ever as a function of service to humanity's upliftment. Yeah, well said. Wow, that's very true. I feel as though once you kind of get that that glimpse, you get that light bulb moment, it becomes almost obligatory. Like the service just kind of flows. And in that service, I find a sense of less inertia to the seeming chaoticness of life and the drama of life and anything that happens in our lives. To always come back to that service orientation to me is some kind of semblance of, yeah, like that, you know, there's like, there's something like, yeah, this is right. It just feels right. I don't know how else to explain it. Like mm. becoming the servant feels just innately human. I don't know how else to explain it. Like it just feels right. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think not only is it like needed for humanity at this point, I think it's also just needed for our, our individual sanity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to for just sure. to have a little more um, selflessness in our life. It feels good. Even if it's just in the little moments, you know, holding the door for somebody <laughs> at the store or something. I feel as though in those little moments, um, it just makes life a little bit more conducive to uh, to find peace. You know, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain it. But yeah, you mentioned we go from a, we're going from a sixth ray to seventh ray. So sixth is, from what I understand, um, that's devotion, right? It's like loving devotion. Yeah, idealism and devotion. And it, 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 look, Realism and devotion. Okay. What, what, what I'm, what I'm saying by what, about these rheological ages is that although the seven rays are present for all of us all the time, in the bigger picture, way beyond the human, larger trends of our certain rays are collectively more accented at certain periods of history and others less so. And it happens that we are in this. We are in a big transition. Some they, the hundreds and hundreds of years these cycles last. We're given to understand that the sixth ray cycle began its exit in the year 1625. And we think that it probably has another 50 or 100 years before it's pulled back as far as it'll pull back. Whereas the seventh ray began to become surging forward in the year 1675. And so it's picking up speed. And right now, collectively, it's about 50-50 in terms of the presence of those energetic patterns. And hence, the polarity is greatest right now and the tension between these two, because they're totally different um, organizing principles of consciousness. You see, the sixth ray was the ray of idealism and devotion. And it's a, it's the, it's the energetic ray that led to the rise of theology. In fact, even today, all religions are ruled by the sixth ray because when, if you, it, the sixth ray is filled with love, but it emphasizes love as idealism and love as devotion to something. And if you look at all world religions, they all have a set of ideals as their core. And a strong tendency to devote to something could be devote to a guru, devote to a savior, devote to a text, whatever it is. Um, and that, that has been operative for over a little over 2000 years as a primary theme. And the, and the, the advent of the Piscean age, which is a sixth ray sign, by the way, inaugurated by the master Jesus. Was the was the sounding of that note for the sixth ray? That's why the sixth ray the sixth ray has also been called the ray of the saving force. It tends to create a kind of rescue energy uh, in a person. People that have a lot of sixth ray in them are often people that are um, very sensitive to suffering in the world and seeing where people are falling through the cracks because of the imperfections of society, and yet 
no one really can be left behind because we're all one anyway. So there, there, a lot of sixth ray people are committed to helping people that are really down and out. So for instance, the sixth ray rules social work as an example. That's because there's a rescue vibration to it. This is why Christianity took on the note, a sixth ray note naturally, but it also emphasized Jesus as the savior, the, the rescue energy. That's the, that's now 2000 years and it's done its work, but now it's, it's retreating and a, and a seventh ray emphasis is trying to, to emerge. And the seventh ray is called the ray of ceremonial order and magic. And it has a lot to do with grounding it. Seventh ray is also, is all about bringing spiritual principles and truths that we sense within us into tangible outer form. Uh, and so it's yeah, it's sense. called the the ray of the practical mystic, while the sixth ray is called the ray of the mystic. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like this, we had to get through the sixth ray to learn, I guess, learn the ideals of servitude first, of love and devotion, and now comes into a sense of um, practicality within everyone's life. So we are all becoming. It seems to be we're all becoming the mystic or the shaman in that way. It seems like to me, correct me if I'm wrong, like seventh ray is, it's like we're devoting that energy that maybe we put a little bit too much outwardly toward an outward idol and re redirecting it back into a sense of uh, an inward idol. And then from that, we become the servant. Yeah, yeah. And it's to make it real. See, I don't know if you're familiar with the seven planes of consciousness, but the seventh plane is the plane of the physical. And so the seventh ray age is much more around the idea of bringing heaven to earth uh, to ground spiritual truths more effectively than they have been in the past so that it's it supports all of us redesigning the patterns of human living, the structures of societal living that we live in, and getting into right relationship with things like Mother Nature, because we need to reorganize in a very tangible, outward, practical way, structures of society that, that are more able to bring out the best of the human spirit through those structures, those social systems, that sort of thing. So this is the this is why the seventh ray, which is the ray of the practical mystic, is all about personally, in, individually, inwardly reaching for the stars and really having that deep sense of mystical connection to the soul and the greater life, while at the same time be reasonable, be thoughtful, have a good mind, and be committed to practical, grounded expression. And that's the future, and the battle today. In the, in the world is the habit of the old and is, is hanging on. In fact, it has been said by great masters that the greatest enemy to the future are the habits of the past. And in this case, some of the sixth ray habits are now working against us and, and yeah. the need to transform those habits. Uh -huh. Yeah. And the habits of the past come from our, ideas of separation that's right now that's we're right. getting the we're getting the awakening into like oh wait a second we're all in this together yeah um, that's right in yeah, fact so. gary it's interesting you should say that another major principle as given to us by great masters has said this that that um uh the great another great obstacle to humanity's future is something called the heresy of separateness. The heresy of separateness. Um, and, and that's really the story, because you know, we have three parts to us. There's your personality, there's the soul, and that's what we're trying to lift our consciousness to become more related to the soul. But there's actually something beyond the soul itself, and that's called the monad, pure spirit, pure being unconscious to us, but that's where a master lives. A master holds him or herself at that level with full enlightenment. 
So, but each of those sections, each of those, what they're called the periodical vehicles, personality, soul, monad, each of them have a different relationship to the outer world. For instance, the personality on its own with no soul influence is governed by separative perspective. The personality, not only that's where ego and pride arise through that personality tendency. It creates, it's the drive to demonstrate your uniqueness. It's also can generate envy. So the personality is governed by the principle of separateness. The causal body, the soul, is governed by the principle of unity. It's the soul in us that senses underlying the outer world, there's something interconnected, which is what you've been talking about, Gary. Something, there's a connection here. I, I feel connected to you. I feel connected to this and that. Um, and so it is said that the soul is governed by the law of unity, whereas the monad is governed by the law of synthesis. Mm -hmm. So here, here's a way of looking at it. The personality says, I'm different than you. The soul says, I see myself in you. The monad says, I am you. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Synthesis, I like that. It's like, <laughs> it's both. It's, we are different and the same, yes. And <laughs> it's bringing those together to find this beautiful dance of expression. And that is the time we live in. We're, we're figuring out how to do that. <laughs> we're figuring out mm -hmm. how to synthesize the human experience. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. It's quite powerful. The world, where the world needs the soulful quality of unity much more than it needs the personality quality of separateness these days. We, we need to find unity. Yeah. And, 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 and it's so based upon what is called the search for right relationship. This is a time when we need to be looking at the question of what is the right relationship that uh, if, if, if the world is trying to figure out how to be one, and that's really what's happening. And all of these lower tendencies of nations, the, the, pers the, the personality of humanity is fighting itself, national historical biases, all of these things are rising up in opposition. But if we really want to find our oneness and live it on an outward practical level, which is what the seventh ray is hoping to generate, there's no way we could really do that unless we collectively can ask the question, what is the right relationship that must exist between all the parts within that oneness? So what's the right relationship between men and women? What's the right relationship between a nation and, na and another nation? What's the right relationship between a government and those it governs? What's the right relationship between humanity and Mother Nature, or humanity and money and resources? These are profound, important questions that are very important at this transitional time. Uh, and the more you awake to your soul, the more you awake to the subtle need to perceive life through the lens of what is right relationship. Well, it's why the sign of Libra is so incredibly important as a companion sign to the Aquarian, dawning Aquarian age, because Libra in its higher nature is all about the search for right relationship. So, um, and Libra has a, a fair dose of seventh ray working through it as well. So, yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool. I'm a Libra. Astro Are you? <laughs> Are you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, then you should balance. know your. Do you know? Do you know them? You, if, if you're Gary, thanks for telling me that. So, the, I, do you meditate? If you do, oh yeah, great. If you do, um, you know, um, in the ancient esoteric philosophy, we have been given what are called keynotes. And they're kind of, they're like mantras, and they're said to be the voice of the soul speaking through a sign. So let me give you the keynote for Libra, because maybe you'll be able to use it. It goes like this. This is said to be the soul speaking in Libra. Here, here's the phrase. I choose the way that leads between 
the two great lines of force. Let me say that again. I choose the way that leads between the two great lines of force. Libra is all about decision-making. On a lower level, it can lead to indecision. You know, because you see two sides of an issue, say, that's right. Well, wait a minute, the opposite is right. But wait a minute. So it can lead to a kind of paralysis through analysis. But on a higher level, it's about right choice and the noble middle path. Indeed, that's why Libra is one of the two signs that rules the religion of Buddhism. Taurus is the other sign. The Buddha said, walk the noble middle path. That's Libra. So anyway, I know you you didn't ask me to speak with you today on astrology. That wasn't our agenda. You wanted to talk about the rays today. But just know that that might be a useful mantra for you or as an affirmation, just to put that out there for you. I like that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I feel as though I've, I've held that in my being, just not spoken in that way, but I do feel... I tread the middle path, you know, I tread the middle way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. That's awesome. I appreciate that. That's great. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, um, <laughs> so what do you think? Are we going to make it, William? Or is this, uh, you know, are we actually going to build heaven on earth here? Is, uh, you know, we're going through a, a tumultuous time, one could say, quite the least. Yeah. yeah. Um, but do you think like we're actually going to get to a, a brighter moment? I, I'm optimistic in the long run, a little pessimistic in the short run, because we're right now at the we're in the yeah. period of time where it's at the worst period, but um, uh, in a certain sense. Um, but in the big picture, I if you look at the history of humanity, even in our darkest times, there is a resilience that arises out of the ashes. And so I, in the big picture, I'm utterly confident that we'll be fine. It's just in the little picture that we have a lot to to struggle through and that's what's happening now and the disciples of the world are called the new group of world servers the, the sum total of all people that are awakening to the path and feel a calling to make some kind of contribution their numbers are growing and um, they're in their millions now and they're coming from all of the ashrams oh i forgot to mention that we talked about the seven rays well each of us, according to our soul ray, is part of an inner ashram. You know, the word ashram is interesting. People, it means spiritual home. And a lot of people think that when they hear the word ashram, they think something in India. But although India has some wonderful things going on in that sense, that's not the ashram. The ashram is is not in India. Um, it's actually deep inside, deep inside in what we call the Buddhic plane. And it's where the soul, the, there are seven ashrams. Each is defined by a ray. So if, let's say you're a third ray soul. That means that your soul is a probationary participant or member of the third ray ashram. And so your purpose as a third ray soul, it isn't even your purpose. Your soul doesn't have a purpose on its own. It's an agent on behalf of the agenda of the third ray ashram. And that these ray ashrams incarnate into humanity over the vastness of time at different intensities, at different frequencies. So right now, there are such certain ashrams are needed in particular as we go through this crisis transition. Others are a little less needed, like the sixth ray, the sixth ray ashram. There are actually sixth ray souls. Those souls are pulling back. And, and incarnating less and less. Whereas other ashrams are incarnating, are incarnating stronger because that rheological pattern that they carry is more needed at this time of history, um, than it had been in the past. So it's a tapestry of these seven rays. And, and in total, all of the people that are on the path from all of those seven ashrams, that has a name that's called the new group of world servers. It's, it's also called the world disciple as a collective oneness. And that group, mm-hmm. that group, much of the future of humanity and the crisis that we are going through right now, which is called the phase of the burning ground, that phase of the burning ground that we're walking across as a humanity, our success in getting to the other side 
and really living a different kind of reality and supporting humanity to take its own initiation. A lot of the success of that rests on the shoulders of the new group of world servers. So some of your listeners may indeed be part of that. And I probably just added a little weight to their shoulders. But the truth is that it's <laughs> a lot of a lot of the future is based upon how well we can bring our wisdom into the world as a function of upliftment. Yeah. 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 Amen to that. Um, on that note, we can probably wrap this thing up, to be honest with you. Um, okay. It's all up to us if we really want to bring about this new world um it's it is truly up to us but i feel as though it's like we don't change the world like we we change ourselves we save ourselves to save the world um it's like mm -hmm. it happens at like an energetic level you know i mean there are definitely things that happen outwardly when one becomes a servant but i feel as though a lot of the work per se is inner work through meditation self-inquiry um, you know, having the right kind of diet. I don't know. The list goes on, but it's all like, it's all within our own lives. I think that's the, yeah. that's the, uh, that's the great thing about this, the, the path, the journey. It's a, it's an inward journey. And it's also quite simple. I think I said that before. It actually is simple or maybe better put, it's that what comes from it is a simplicity of life, you know, like a simple, a sim simplification of lifestyle, you know, um, yeah it's a paradox and in the es in essence it's simple uh and yet to get to that simplicity sometimes you have to work your way through some of the complexity to understand it to get to the simplicity yeah. so you're quite right you're quite right yeah. it is there are very fundamental simple principles that are at the core of it all um so yeah yeah well thank you for inviting me i appreciate uh, having the opportunity to speak to you and your audience and um I do wish you well in your work also. Same to you, William. I appreciate your time, uh, effort, and wisdom that you brought to this talk. This was definitely a very, very different talk than I usually have. I mean, the truth is the truth, and it all relates in one way or the other, but the seven rays and, and stuff like that, I've never talked to anybody about that. So this was this was awesome to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, I appreciate anybody that listened this long. I thank you again, William. Keep doing your thing. Um, wish you all the best. Okay. Thank you so much. And if you ever wanted to do it again, just let me know. So, okay? For sure. For sure. Okay. Peace and love. Peace and love, everybody.